an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. This is our 70th episode. 70? Wow. Can you imagine? I never thought we would get to two. So we I mean, almost 70. didn't get to two. So no, we almost didn't get to two. Yeah. That first one's pretty bad. Anyway, look, <clears throat> um, this is season four, episode 12. BBS's Demented and Sad but Social. It's actually about Christmas 1984. It's a Christmas episode. It's Christmas 1984, BBS's Demented and Sad, but Social. Hey, right. where did we get that uh, line from? Uh, well, you know what? I think if you want to know, Jeff, mm-hmm. why don't we play the Christmas story? And then we can talk about it afterwards. Sounds good. Let's play the Christmas story right away in this episode. Steve, okay. get right into the season. Right into it. Let's go. Right into it. Christmas 1984, the Volksmodem, demented and sad, but social. Part 1, RS-232C. When we first got our Atari 100 for Christmas in 1983, we didn't even fathom upgrading it. Since it was secondhand, it came with all sorts of stuff, enough stuff it seemed to last us for years to come. There was such a multitude of cartridges, discs, books, and manuals to pour over and through that it masked the one glaring omission we had totally forgotten about, a printer. A printer was pretty much the only tool, besides a monitor, you could hook up to a computer at the time that would show regular, non-computer-using people just what a computer could do. It created a physical output that someone could hold and gaze upon. In fact, I was pretty sure I'd won the computer art contest at junior high earlier that year, specifically because I'd drawn a picture on a Koala art tablet in the computer lab, then printed it out and handed it in. A printer, we argued to our dad, would allow us to excel at homework and would help us stay that much further away from ending up on Skid Row. 
he readily agreed. At the next SBACE Space Atari user group meeting in early January 1984, my dad asked around about the best printer for the Atari 800. Without a doubt, he was told that the best value for the money was the Star Micronics Gemini 10X 9-pin printer. One person there even knew a guy who would sell us one. That was the magic of computer user groups at the time. There was always someone who knew a guy. Someone knew a guy who just happened to have LucasArts behind Jagai lines to demo at a meeting. Someone else knew a guy who wrote books about Atari software, specifically the Addison Wesley 1984 Book of Atari Software, and that guy was named Jeffrey Stanton, and he also attended the meetings. So for our 14th birthday, when most 80s kids were getting skateboards or surfboards or Walkmen, instead my dad drove us out to Bellflower, California to some random house where we purchased a secondhand Atari 850 interface required to get the proper parallel port to connect a printer to an Atari and a brand new 9-pin fan-fold paper using black and white printing wonder out of some dude's garage. That 9-pin printer lasted us almost five years. We used it to print out program listings, make banners, and produce a multitude of sketchy 8-bit birthday and Christmas cards for our parents and sisters, most of which were very hard to read because a 9-pin printer printed notoriously lightly on paper. The Atari 850 interface was a necessary peripheral if you wanted to expand your Atari 8-bit beyond having just a disk drive or other Atari-specific SIO-compatible peripherals. The manual described the features. It offered one Centronics parallel port for a printer and a massive set of four RS-232C serial ports. The RS-232C port was an alternative to the Atari SIO serial port provided on the Atari 8-bit computer line. The SIO port was a wonder of engineering. It allowed for daisy-chaining peripherals in serial and was designed so the Atari 800 didn't need open expansion slots like an Apple II. SIO was far ahead of its time, and according to both Joe DeCour and Benji Edwards, it was named as prior art for USB when patent trolls tried to profit off that technology. That means that SIO basically saved USB, another thing you can thank Atari for. However, the problem with SIO was that it was expensive and proprietary, so many third-party peripherals didn't support it. Instead, they mostly supported RS-232, which meant having an 850 interface with four RS-232 ports opened up a whole world of functionality for our Atari 800 with additional peripherals. And the most interesting peripheral in 1984, beyond a printer, was a modem. A modem. A modulator-demodulator. A modem was something we had never thought about owning before we had an 850 interface. A modem used a phone line to call other computers. Most kids in the 80s were introduced to the concept of a modem from the movie War Games, where Matthew Broderick used one to woo Ali Sheedy, snoop on Silicon Valley games companies, and then nearly set off World War III. None of us wanted to start World War III. Well, no one I knew anyway. But lots of kids I knew were fascinated by the concept of connecting to other computers to see what they could do on them, my brother Jeff and I included. As with most home computer topics in the 80s, it seemed like once we heard about a certain new thing or technology, synchronicity took over, and the topic appeared everywhere. Such was the case with the concept of owning a modem. In 1984, it just so happened that the Space User Group monthly meetings location moved from far away Lomita, about five miles away, to Redondo Beach, just down the street from us. Curiously, one of the first meetings was hosted by a local BBS operator who was the SysOp. 
systems operator, a video BBS, also located in Redondo Beach and apparently the most popular BBS in our area. He talked about what a BBS was, a bulletin board system, how you connected with a modem, how many people could call at the same time, one, and what you could do on the BBS, leave messages on forms, download software, talk to the sysop. It was suggested in the meeting that the video BBS could become the official BBS of space. I'm not sure this ever actually happened though. This meant that without a way to call the BBS, we'd be missing out on much of what the user group would offer in the future. Space was a really neat once a month social space for Atari computer owners, but for a couple of 14 year old kids, it also felt intimidating. Our dad didn't know enough to ask all the right questions, and we were too shy to do much asking ourselves. Besides asking about the printer, we mostly stayed quiet and just listened. The BBS seemed like a great way to keep in touch with space, but also not have to brave the social interactions of the monthly users group. Jeff and I decided right then and there that the next Christmas, 1984, we would find a way to get a modem for our Atari 800 computer and get online as soon as possible. Part 2. 300 bits per second. The July 1984 issue of Antic Magazine formed a watershed moment for us in the process of figuring out how to get a modem for our Atari 800. The issue was dedicated to getting online, and it was published at the perfect time. We learned from the magazine that to be able to call a BBS like Video BBS, we needed three basic components. A terminal program, a modem, and a phone line. The first thing we needed was a terminal program. A terminal program was used to operate the modem to call other computers over the phone line. Atari had their own terminal programs named Telelink 1 and Telelink 2, but it was well known that those were both expensive and restricted from downloading Telelink or storing to a disk Telelink 2. Maybe Atari restricted those features to combat software piracy or to steer users directly to online services, but whatever it was, it pretty much rendered the terminal software useless. Instead, Antic encouraged readers to use X-Modem compatible software. X-Modem was a standard used across all manner of computer systems, and it acted kind of like a Rosetta Stone for modems, allowing different types of computers to easily transfer files to one another. As a bonus, the magazine offered up an alternative to Telelink, A-Modem, a free terminal program that could be used by nearly any Atari computer. A quick check of the Space software library showed us that A-Modem was available to copy at our convenience at a local computer store named Software Center that held the Space Disk Library. This meant for all intents and purposes, the problem of a terminal program was solved. The modem, though, was a different story. Modems were expensive. The flagship modem of the day, the type our friend Wesley had for his IBM PC compatible, was the Hayes Smart Modem. Hayes was the Cadillac of modems. It did everything. First off, the Hayes Smart Modem 1200 ran at 1200 baud, which was just about the fastest a consumer-grade modem could run at the time. A 1200 baud, baud equal to bits per second, modem could transfer up to 150 characters per second, or about a quarter page of text. It had auto-dial and auto-answer, which meant it itself could run a BBS. It supported both touch and dial phones, and could even auto-redial if it encountered a busy signal. It was also beautiful, encased in a sweet black casing with a row of red flashing LEDs in the front. It looked striking next to Wesley's computer, almost like Kit from Knight Rider. Honestly, it might have been the most impressive peripheral of the era. 
The Hayes brand meant quality, but that also carried a price. A Hayes Smart Modem 1200 cost about $600, about twice the cost of our Atari 800, and three times the cost of the 850 and the Gemini 10X. There was no possible way we could get a Hayes Smart Modem. Even though Hayes was technically compatible with our Atari 800 through the RS-232 port on the 850 interface, we needed to look elsewhere. And elsewhere was found in that Antic magazine, where they reviewed an alternative that appeared to be within our reach, the Anchor Vokes Modem. The Anchor Vokes Modem was nothing like the Hayes Smart Modem. It was a little gray box brick with two switches, one for full or half duplex and one for talk and data, which was actually the power switch. It could not auto dial or auto answer. It didn't even have its own power supply, but sat powered directly from the phone line, just like a regular telephone. It didn't even come in a box, just a blister pack that could be hung from a rack in a bargain aisle computer department like the ones we visited at Fedco and Gemco. The other thing was that the Vokes modem only ran at 300 bits per second, four times slower than the Hayes 1200. 300 bits per second was really slow. 300 bits per second was 37.5 Atasky characters per second. With control codes and headers and footers from modem packets, etc., even with the efficiencies provided by Xmodem, it was effectively about 35 or so characters per second, or about 280 bits. A modern tweet would take about 15 seconds to display. However, there were two things the Vokes modem had going for it that put it at the top of our list. One, it was reliable. According to the Antic Review, it had a lifetime warranty and worked perfectly the first time the reviewer tried it. Two, at $79.95, it was well within the acceptable price range that we might be able to afford. When we went to explain to our dad what the modem was and why we needed one, we decided to lead the conversation with those two items, as everything else would pretty much be immaterial to him. But there was one more thing we needed to contend with, the phone line. The existing phone line in our house was sacred. It was a single lifeline that connected us in two-way conversation with the universe. My sister often stretched the phone line and receiver cord as far as possible, snaking it tightly through the living room, just around the corner into my parents' room, where she could shut the door and talk privately about Lord knows what a 19-year-old girl talked about with her friends in 1984. The whole concept of a phone line had so many problems. They seemed insurmountable. First of all, monopolizing the phone line in our house would be a problem. We would have to be careful when using the modem in our house. If we didn't have our own phone line, we'd need to relegate all modem use to after 10 o'clock at night. There was an advantage here, though, as certain local prefixes still cost money to call, and those charges would be less at night. We didn't plan to rack up any charges with the modem, though, but just in case, the plan to only call after 10 o'clock p.m. was still a good idea. Secondly, we would need a phone port installed in our room. There was only one port in the house, and that was in the living room. AT&T had a monopoly on phone lines at the time, and to get a port installed, even for the same phone number that was already in our house, would cost $50. We'd have to somehow eat that cost, and we started to save money the moment we realized we would have to pay it. Knowing these issues might tank the whole concept of getting a modem, we decided to leave the phone line issues not totally solved until after we convinced our dad that having a modem was necessary for us to continue our progress towards computer literacy and ultimately stay off Skid Row. However, there was a serendipitous event occurring in 1984 that unbeknownst to us would make our modem dream possible. The breakup of AT&T. It had been planned for over a decade and mandated in 1982, but in January 1984, the government breakup of the telephone monopoly of American Telephone and Telegraph took effect. The idea was to lower prices for consumers and increase competition in a market that had more or less been a monopoly for AT&T for most 
of the 20th century. It worked out pretty good for AT&T, which had been struggling to keep the local phone service profitable for a long time. After the breakup, AT&T got to keep all the stuff they actually made a profit from. Bell Labs, the Yellow Pages, Long Distant Calls, etc. The phone company, as we had always known it, was broken up into seven smaller companies, or so named Baby Bells, that operated regionally around the United States. Since each region was only covered by one company, it was hard to understand how this would lower prices and increase competition. But nothing was ever really clear when the government was involved in the 80s, especially with the Reagan administration. One of the biggest advantages for consumers was that they no longer had to rent a phone from AT&T. This might not sound like much, but in 1984, a flesh-colored rotary phone from the AT&T Monopoly would cost anywhere from 3 to $5 a month to rent, upwards of $80 to have fixed, and you could never, ever own one. After the breakup, though, phone prices dropped to unheard levels until you could get a serviceable phone at Radio Shack for about 30 bucks. This was great news for our plan to get a modem, as a new phone line would not require us to rent a phone to get a line. But there was more. Our region was covered by a company named Pacific Telesis. As a promotion that year, Pacific Telesis offered free installation on a second phone line and a $15 a month fee thereafter. This was unheard of, and my dad recognized the amazing bargain instantly. Long a critic of AT&T, I think he felt this was a way to stick it to the man that AT&T's century-long monopoly represented to him. We didn't need to convince him of anything after that, as long as we paid for the first few months after the free installation and proved that we would actually get some regular use out of the modem, he'd be willing to help us get online calling BBS Systems by Christmas 1984. Part 3. The People Modem Christmas 1984 was unlike all Christmases before it, as we pretty much knew everything we were going to get before the day even arrived. My dad took us to Fedco, where he purchased a Volks modem and an RS-232 cable for about the same cost as the MSRP for the Volks modem alone after Fedco's generous discount. We didn't need to pay the $50 for the phone line installation, so Jeff and I had money to buy software for each other for Christmas. On a trip to the local Gemco, Jeff and I bought a copy of Atari Writer on heavy discount, under $50, as Jack Tremiel, the new owner of Atari, slashed all software prices along with huge price reductions on Atari computers. We planned to use Atari Writer with the Gemini 10X. We also got Epix's gateway to AppShine and cartridge for the Atari 100. Gaming and writing would be fun on Xmas that year, but we also knew to take a backseat to the main show, the Vokes modem. It was not about surprises anymore, like the Christmases of old in 1984. Everything that year pointed towards the future, and it seemed like everything was falling into place. My mom drove us out to Software Center in Lawndale one day in early December so we could get a copy of A-Modem. It was the first time we visited the Space Software Library. We brought along a cardboard Memorex box filled with five blank disks just in case we found other files to copy. I felt a bit strange going into that small independent software store and asking to use the Space Software Library. It somehow felt like I was cheating them by not buying anything. But we also had no extra cash, so there's no way to change the situation. I promised myself to return soon and buy one of the APX titles that they had lined up near the cash register. As my mom waited in the Dotson 710 outside reading her Stephen King book, Jeff and I poured through several volumes of the Space Library that day and filled all five discs with all manner of public domain software. Some of them were typing programs from Antic and Analog. One was a Monopoly game. Some were disc copy programs, but were mostly useless. And a few other interesting little things. I can't recall any other titles except for the most important one, A-Modem. 
Driving home, it felt great to have a modem socked away in the Memorex box. I turned on the radio to KRQ, our local alternative station, just in time to hear a new song by my new favorite band, The Alarm. It was named The Chant Has Just Begun. Unlike most of their other previous songs that were folk punk with acoustic guitars, The Chant had programmed drums and loop sequences in an infectious sing-along chorus that went away ya la la away ya ya it belied a totally different modern era for the band serendipitously it seemed that they were moving forward with their music and we would be moving forward with our computing too a couple of weeks before christmas the pacific telesis man arrived punched a hole in our bedroom wall and installed a brand new phone jack free of charge everything it seemed was falling in place but then jeff and i made a teenage mistake the first of many. On the day Christmas vacation started, we took a trip with a couple friends to see the movie 2010. It should have been just an innocent trip to the movies to see a subpar film sequel. But before we went, our friends loaded up on peppermint schnapps from their mom's liquor cabinet. They stored the schnapps in plastic film canisters to sneak into the movie theater. Jeff and I didn't plan to drink any of it, but we didn't complain either. We thought it was kind of funny. We weren't bad kids. We just also didn't want to be seen as nerds anymore. And the only way to do that in high school was to participate, even lightly, in some kind of little rebellion. And this seemed really harmless. The movie was pretty terrible, at least to 14-year-olds. And during the movie, our friends got wasted on schnapps and could hardly walk out of the theater. So instead of walking home, Jeff and I called our mom to pick us up, who, being a smart woman, instantly smelled the peppermint schnapps oozing out of the pores of our friends. What's that smell, she said, knowing exactly what she was smelling. The car was deathly silent as my mom dropped off our friends. And after they got out, she said, what the hell was that? We told her Dave and John snuck schnapps into the movie theater. We didn't have any. She didn't totally buy it. Later, she said when dad got home, we'd find out what our punishment was. He better not take the modem away, we said to each other. When our dad got home, he told us that we were grounded for two weeks, all a Christmas vacation. It sucked, but it could have been much worse. My dad acted strangely to us after that on the run-up to Christmas. It might have been the schnapps thing, but it might have been something else, too. I don't think my dad was ready for us to grow up yet. This is the same year he produced his Christmas tree stand, chronicled in the previous story, The Christmas Train. To summarize... He worked all year to produce an amazing Christmas tree stand that, that doubled as a snow-blanketed mountain N-scale train layout, complete with a small town and a tunnel. And then he surprised us with it when we bought the tree that year. Jeff and I were both smitten as well as amazed by his creation, which is pretty much the best thing he had ever or would ever create in his life, in my humble opinion. We ran the little train up until Christmas Eve, and it really, truly was the perfect handmade Christmas decoration. But in that excitement, with my dad focused on his surprise, he totally forgot about the Volks modem and RS-232 cable. He hid them in the back of his closet weeks before, and then just forgot all about them. So on Christmas morning that year, after all the presents were open, including an actual real telephone from Target that my mom got us, Jeff and I remained modemless. We had to ask, Dad? What happened to the modem? Oh, shit, he exclaimed, and he ran into his room, returning a few minutes later with the same Fedco bag we had brought home weeks before. It was in sharp contrast to the year before, when he had provided our Atari 100 a surprise so big, yet so baffling, that it became the best Christmas ever. The Vokes modem Christmas instead became something else entirely. It was the end of an era. I think the whole idea of us going to Fedco to buy the Vokes modem for Christmas kind of broke something in my dad. He loved Christmas. He loved surprises. Yet his boys, his youngest kids, then 14 years old, had finally grown out of it. They then just told him what they wanted and expected to get it. The magic was gone. An era over that will never return.
Later that day in 1984, after firing up Atari Writer to create a few documents, then playing multiple levels of the proto-action RPG Gateway to Apshai, we hooked up the Vokes modem to the 850 interface with the RS-232 cable, and then to the wall with the regulation gray twisted pair telephone cable, and fired up a modem from the Memorex disk we had copied at Software Center. We had the phone number for Video BBS, but we couldn't call it yet. We got the new phone book from Pacific Telesis and checked the front section that held all manner of interesting information. The most important section for us was the list of local prefixes. Even though the number for video BBS was in the 213 area code, that still did not mean it was not a toll call. Jeff and I simply could not rack up any more than the $15 a month on our phone line, and that meant we could not take any charges at all. The list of local prefixes then became our Bible. Every time we found a new BBS, we had to check the prefix to make sure that it was within the allowable numbers we could call. Our prefix was 372, and our regular phone was 376. We knew those prefixes were okay, but this is where it got tricky. 379 was free, but 377 and 378 were not. 545 and 549 were free, but 544 and 541 were not. There appeared to be no logic to it. There was a map to the local prefixes, but it resembled a gerrymandered electoral map designed for maximum voter suppression. So we had to check every number and do it religiously. The good news was video BBS was 379, which meant we were good to go. We typed the number into A modem and it dialed in an ultra slow motion version of the 90s 56K dial-up sound kids nowadays think is funny, like a retro joke. But this was slow, very slow. After we connected, a modem displayed a welcome message from Video BBS, one line at a time. Actually, part of a line at a time. The slow connection display, while kind of annoying, also added to the anticipation of seeing just what the sysop of Video BBS had created. The welcome message was a nicely designed ASCII art logo that said Video BBS, with their phone number and the name of the sysop inserted at the bottom. ASCII art welcome screens were the easiest way a sysop could customize their BBS for users who called up. The first thing we did was create a username. We thought about it for a while, then chose the kid. We sounded vaguely piratey, but also had a lot of truth to it as it was how we felt, like kids. The next thing we did was look at the message boards. There were multiple message boards for all kinds of topics, and one of them was for programming. Jeff and I had been struggling with understanding display lists in Atari Basic. We wanted to ask a question about them at space meetings, but could never get up the courage to say anything. We thought people would ignore us because we were kids or just laugh at us because we didn't know it already. So on the programming board, we left a message asking if someone could help explain display list interrupts to us. If it was a dumb question, who cared? It was the kid asking, not us. No one would ever know. We pressed the call sysop selection, but there was no answer. Then we found a list of other BBS systems and jotted down the numbers. We checked the prefixes and found one, Swamp's Atari BBS, that was local. And we called that one too. The number was busy, so we waited a bit and tried again. We got through. Swamps had an even more elaborate opening scrawl and even more active message boards. We found a number of another BBS on Swamps named the Death Star. And that had a local prefix too. Three BBSs already in one day. Our connections were multiplying. The Death Star seemed to be permanently busy. It was intriguing as to why it was so busy. 
What did they have on that BBS that made it so interesting? After Christmas dinner that afternoon and a few more games of Gateway to Apshai, it was 10 p.m. or so before we fired up a modem to call BBSs once again. We dialed Video BBS back up and waited as the opening ASCII welcome graphics slowly scrolled up the screen. We chose the message board menu option and saw something amazing. Something had occurred while we were gone. There was a little one next to the question about the display list. Someone had responded, and when we read the message, it went something like this. I'd be happy to explain display list interrupts. What would you like to know? Sign Brico. And that was the turning point. First contact. The very first social media my brother and I ever participated in. The first of millions upon millions of connections to come over BBS's email, Telnet, Gopher, FTP, and one day the World Wide Web. The shyness we felt at the space meeting melted away. The Atari keyboard, the TV display, the modem all sat between us and the BBS systems on the other side. An electronic shield that protected us from the scrutiny of adults. The kid could ask questions and get answers with a modem, even at 300 baud, and nobody cared to ask who he really was. It was a turning point. In February of 1985, my dad took us to a movie named The Breakfast Club. I'd seen commercials for it, but I was not very enthused. It looked like one of those teen movies, like maybe Porky's or Joysticks, which seemed like just a bunch of dumb sex jokes. However, my dad insisted, and so one Saturday morning we found ourselves, 15 years old, in the 80s, watching the quintessential 80s John Hughes movie and being completely blown away by it. I think this was my dad's way of moving on and past the concept that he had to keep saluting our childhood with things like model trains and surprises for Christmas. Instead, our dad, the actor who loved movies, was trying to teach us about life by taking us to a movie. And it worked. This was the first movie I'd ever seen that had kids actually talking like kids in high school. Sure, there was some dumb and contrived stuff too, but there's also a lot of truth. Brian, the nerd, was the kid I most identified with, but I could see parts of myself in all five kids, including Bender, the criminal misfit. In fact, it was an exchange between Brian and Bender that stood out among many exchanges as one I could totally identify with. When Brian tells Bender that his math club had banquets where they dress up, Bender tells him, well, that's social, demented and sad, but social. In a nutshell, that's exactly how I felt about the Vokes modem and calling BBSs to talk to people I'd never see. It was social, and the Brian and me loved the interaction and how it freed me up to do things I'd never do in real life. But at the same time, with my new love for new wave music and a growing sense of rebellion building inside my head, I could see Bender's side too. It was a bit demented. It was a bit sad. And while it had potential to take over all social interactions, that would be a huge mistake. Volk's modem translated into its obvious German roots means people modem. Our Volk's modem was as slow as a modem could get, and it could really only do one thing. Yet, it was all we needed to achieve the connections we desired to take our Atari computer efforts to the next level. It was not fancy or expensive or flashy like a Hayes Smart Modem 1200, but it got the job done 
and showed us a path forward. The slow 300 baht speed of the modem was probably a blessing in disguise. It took so long to download a program, for instance, from a BBS, that my brother and I still had time to go outside and play games together, including basketball on the new hoop our dad installed for our birthday that year. And at the same time, another blessing in disguise was that, since the Vox modem could not auto-answer, our new high school friends and potential girlfriends could call our new phone number, and it would still act like a real phone. And this meant... We never had to tell anyone about our modem. We never had to admit being demented and sad like Brian when the benders of the world made contact. We could hide our passion because in the 80s and especially in high school in the 80s, that's pretty much what you needed to do to survive. We then were the people of the Volksmodem, the regular people. We could be both digital and analog with the Volksmodem. We could be both Brian and Bender. We could go online and then go out in the real world. It was the people's modem, the Volksmodem. And it was made for people just like us. Right, Steve. Christmas 1984 and that whole run-up. That was a bizarre time. It was bizarre. We ended eighth grade and then dropped into freshman in high school. And everything changed between those two years. Everything. Well, yeah, I mean, think about it. We go to summer 1984. Right. And Atari gets sold to Shermill. Atari basically goes out of business. Atari implodes that pompeii the mount Vesuvius exploded and the entire golden age of video games was preserved in stone okay like just set in space that was the end of it in one place it was ptsd <clears throat> for everyone who's still on atari age who can't believe that that event <laughs> okay but at that actual moment in time when it happened did it have any effect on you and your life at all no, no not none. at all in fact none. when it happened i was like oh yeah well atari's been kind of going out of way the whole time we had, had our atari 100 already we really didn't know did we, you even we, realize it well it wasn't like we knew that the difference between what tremil's atari would be and the regular atari we're like oh well, we're gonna still have the atari 100 computer right well, that's cool is there any difference in our computing <clears throat> life for that first year no. really at all no 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 there wasn't no. there wasn't there, there there really wasn't any difference at all we didn't know the whole mount vesuvius ptsd ptsd you know uh, uh software burial you know in alamogordo whatever how, however you want to think of it um that that realization didn't come till later that realization probably didn't come until 96 or 97 when Atari exactly. actually went out of business well, for real. Magazines started talking about this a little bit, but to be honest, um, it didn't. Everybody thinks that it's this big break, right? And it wasn't. It was incredibly slow, especially for Atari, because you would still find all the software for the 800. There was still software for the internet until 86. It just got slower and slower. It got slower and slower. And for anyone who went from their Atari 2600 
to a Commodore 64, there was no change. They just had a mountain of games and software to keep playing. And so we saw it because retailers still were angry, not at Commodore particularly, at Tramiel. So it was so hard for him to get into mass merchandisers with his new Atari computers. We didn't even know this or realize it, right? Like no, it's we nothing that we- We did not realize this yet. It didn't really bother me that Atari had gone out of business because the, the 5200 was kind of a disappointment. The 2600 had become kind of a disappointment. And it wasn't until they announced the 7800 that we're like, oh, is that gonna come out? That looks amazing. But I don't think if the 7800 came out in 1984, we would have changed our plans about getting a modem. I think we wouldn't have gotten it. Now the 7800 did come out, but you're saying it did come out in a few places, but right, it was right. not it a place that we could- get. Widely available for us to purchase. If it came out for real with a real marketing strategy behind it, was in every store, it was blown out, right? I don't whatever whatever the test market was, I don't care. That doesn't count because no one actually saw it or knew what it was and it disappeared. Well, if if it, it came out for real, Toys R Us, there were TV commercials, there was a new Have You with Atari Today jingle. We are seeing commercials with the new version of, I don't know, Galaga and Food Fight, and you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it would be Christmas time ads and, you know, right next to Miller's Outpost ad on TV, there would be an Atari commercial. That's what I'm talking about. That didn't yeah. happen. So if it actually had happened and it had had a, like an, a keyboard and stuff that could be turned into a computer or Marie chip was then used in the eight bits, it could have been something incredible. We don't have to go back around the lane. I'll say one thing no. at that time though. There was a, I was reading through a lot of the, the magazines and there's an article in one of them where Jeff Minter is talking about Atari now having the Maria chip and how awesome it would be to see it in the 8-bits. So it was yeah. just interesting. I forget where I saw that. It was in one of the one of the magazines. It's just interesting until even people were thinking of that. So for us, though, our summer happens. We're happily playing our Atari 800. We're kind of trying to figure out what we're going to do in high school. We start high school. Things socially are different. We have some of the same friends we don't. But we're running up where like we want a modem really badly yes. for some reason. I don't know what that I, reason was. Only maybe that that well, I think had come because out. we had, like I said, we'd been at the space meetings and we had the guy from Video BBS came and okay, so the space meetings moved. I don't know if you remember this, but it was in the story. If you remember, if you recall, I do remember this. Space meetings moved from Lamita, which is about. I don't know, five or 10 miles away from us, to the Redondo Beach Library, which is about half a mile from where, where we live. And the guy who ran Video BBS, which was the largest BBS in the area, I don't know why, it just was. Well, he um, had multiple lines. Um, oh, I don't remember. I remember us only, I remember him only having one line when we, when we started. I mean, he um, just had multiple disk drives and multiple megs. Oh, he had, he had all sorts of files available. He came to our space meeting and he, and he talked about running the BBS. And we're like, oh, that's cool. This it's local here, and it maybe it was because we knew it was it was local. I don't know. And we thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to be able to call that BBS? I think though the concept was we had just started going to the space software library, and we're like, oh shoot, if if this BBS becomes the official BBS of space, we're gonna miss out on like half of what the user group does. Right. Right. So, exactly. So I think that was part of it, and part of it was just. You know, I mean, war games had just come out the year before. Every kid wanted a modem. Not every kid wanted to launch World War Three, but we were all interested in modems, We're, right? What we could find online. And these BBSs yeah. became 
the internet, basically, at the sure. time. And you know, I, I talked to a story about what it was like to dial up and um, and, yeah, and stay on it for a little while. And a lot of the BBSs can only have one person on at a time. So you got your 20 or 30 minutes and then you were done and the next person called up and then you'd call back later hoping to see if somebody had answered your request. I mean, it's a little bit like now when you go back to Twitter and you click on notifications and somebody like my tweet about Atari ads and, <laughs> and then you hope, you know, and then somebody liked it and you're like, yay, and that little bit of, of excitement goes through. It was the same thing except we were 14 and it was it was that much more exciting because it was super brand new. And super nerdy. Yes, but we super loved it. nerdy. And and I think that's another thing. I think this this modem thing, this whole video game computer thing, especially the modem, this is not something you readily talked about no, no. doing at school with other people. Yeah, no, not, not at our school, Some at people. least. Some not people. at our school. I mean, maybe there were a few. I um, The grown-up 80s guys just did a uh, BBS episode about BBSs in Canada and Commodore, which is just, this came out this week, just as an oh, aside. Oh, cool. Oh, that's awesome. There's a guy who runs, it's an RPG blog on the Life and Times of Video Games podcast. He was on probably about a year ago talking about the RPGs. And he also mentioned that, you know, playing computer games in the 80s wasn't something you talked about with anybody who wasn't part of the video game scene or computer game scene. And there weren't many of those people. So it just wasn't something you talked about. It just wasn't something you talked much about. You no. put on a different face when you were around right. other people. Right. We didn't, you didn't necessarily want to get your ass kicked talking no. about playing on the computer and that was definitely a possibility just in general in right? general I mean, it was much more possibility then than it is now um, sure just i mean i'm sure school. it is now too but it's just different schools actually have like programs trying to do something with bullies or stuff like that back then it was like it was almost encouraged for there to be bullies yeah i know okay anyway so, so Here's the thing. So we go into Christmas before there were a couple games we got or a couple now, pieces of software we got. Christmas. I know we got a for Christmas. I know we got Atari Writer, which was awesome. I mean Atari Writer, finally it was a good word. Processor. I think we needed that. Yeah, we needed that to be able to use our printer properly. Right, to use the printer. Before we had Atari Writer, I think we had we had some sort of little word processor that was probably from an antic, you know, article or something. And it was um, fine. Uh, like text pro or something. Tramiel came and made it 50 bucks. Right. That's so Tramiel, Tramiel made it expensive before 50 that. bucks. And so that's how we could get it cheaper. And it and might it, even been less at Fedco. It might even been like 44 95 or something. I do remember there being a, a wide selection of software still at Fedco and at Big Ben's. And that's how we were able to get so many good Synapse games and stuff like that. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about Atari Rider, Dave? Atari Rider, May 1983. Atari has now released a new word processor, Atari Writer, 16K ROM-based program for $100 that combines the best features of all the others. This was from Antic in 1983. Basically, Atari Writer was written by William Robinson, who did Text Wizard for Datasoft. And oh. then you'll see later on that Atari Writer Plus comes out, written by him. And when Atari no longer is supporting it, Datasoft has a version too. I'm not so sure how that went because there were other Datasoft did other things like put out Dig Dug on disk not cartridge. You know, they did things like that. So I'm not sure how Datasoft and Atari were connected software-wise. This was some sort of little connection there in some way. But a lot of Atari software development for the 8-bits was done by Datasoft. 
um, uh, under covers. It was a word processor. It was a good one. And but I you took, know what was great about it were all those Alan Alda commercials. So all the commercials right. all the time with Alan Alda, who was very well respected at the time, talking about Atari Writer. He really made you believe that Atari Writer was the thing to get. Like it was it was cool. They had just kept doing those commercials and they had pushed it. Atari could have beaten the Commodore 64. I don't know. I don't know about that. Okay, Here's could have still been alive along with the Commodore. Listen, 64. this is this is why I don't think so. I think by missing Christmas 1983. Right. They missed the big Christmas when people got Commodore 64. Yeah, they sold 300,000 and Commodore sold a million. <clears throat> and then Christmas 84, Tremiel decided he wanted to make the 65XD and the 130XD. So he dumped the Atari 800s in the stores cheap. But I don't think there's any advertising. And so, again, like he didn't do a lot of marketing. And so I think that there, the problem was was that the, the two Christmases in a row, Atari was playing with one hand tied behind its back. Right. And, right. and Commodore, those are the two Christmases that, you know, that's the, 1984 is a Christmas that a lot of kids traded up from the Atari 2600 to a Commodore 64. Right. And they and, saw advertising. Their parents did not go in the store seeing this unadvertised Atari, cheap Atari sitting in the corner and purchase it. Atari has the 2600 the 5200, the 800XL, the 600XL, the 1200XL, too many f***ing products. Right. Like, right. What, what do you buy? The Commodore 64, they got a Commodore 64, period. It was easy to understand what you were buying, too. Right. This is confusing. There's still a huge installed base of Atari computer users. What definitely explains the lack of software that started to trickle out in mid-1985 and then stop in 86 is the fact that they did dump those computers. And it had been two years of faltering sales and people not knowing what was happening. And the software developers all, I'm moving to the thing that makes me money, that Commodore Well, 64. and also there was, I mean, Atari had a lot of piracy too. You know, don't forget so, that. But you know. every single computer had a lot of piracy. Like the people we knew who had Apple computers, they didn't buy one friggin' piece of <laughs> yeah, software. Yeah, that's true. People that's who had true. Commodore software, same thing. There were just more of them. The same amount of piracy, but less machines to make right, money to, off of. To make money off of, exactly. So. The, but we did get at least one game that Christmas that was purchased. What game was that, Steve? Gateway to Apshai, and Gateway we talked about it in the story as well, but Apshai. Gateway to Apshai was absolutely amazing. I think we had played it our friend Brandon's Coleco. No, version. no, no, no. I Brandon got a Coleco version. Came out way after the Atari version. After we had it on the Atari. Oh, okay. Only okay. get it because it came on Coleco. They only made a 16K ROM for the Atari one. They only had nine levels or something. The Coleco version one had 99 levels that were random. Oh my god! Now there were some randomization in the Atari one too. Gateway to Apshai was released for the Atari 8-bit in July 1983. For the Commodore 64 in February 1984, for the ColecoVision in May 1984, and it was re-released on AntStream in 2019, most likely for the Commodore 64. I didn't check. It was actually developed by the, a group called the Connolly Group, which was James Connolly and a few programmers who had left Epics. They left to create games like this, and they actually provided a lot of software back to Epics for the 8-bits. Uh, and so the trickle of 8-bit software that you got was by this Connolly group. Both cool. Antic, Antic and Analog love the game. And it's basically one of the first, for for us on the computers, it was the first action 
RPG, really. And it was really a roguelike in essence, but it was an action RPG. I, I loved it. Me I too. It I, more than Temple of Abstract Trilogy, although I like Temple of Abstract Trilogy a lot. I just thought Game of Abstract was just, just a really fun game. It was well, sort of the first. It's easier game. to control. It's a game that you had, and if you pirated it, you didn't know how to play it because you had to use the start and select buttons to be able to go through your inventory. So you I had know. to understand what you're doing. So I know also about this time we went to Toys R Us and I can't remember why we hadn't done this before, but we saw they had some Vectrix games. Right. I think the one we didn't have was Cosmic Chasm. And I think we picked it up for like six bucks or something. Maybe. The reason we hadn't done it is because money trickled in very slowly. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, but I think we we picked up, that's where we got Cosmic Chasm. Around Christmas, we started finding what we had never known there to be bargain bins and these bargain oh, yeah. bargain mean of software and we started picking up stuff that we could get and that's where we got some vetric stuff yeah the, and atari 800 uh, stuff i remember going to the mall and picking up a bunch of thorn emmy cartridges at the time we got like kickback and a soccer game and a couple other ones from thorn emmy for the atari 8 bit so we're just in a bin in front of kb toys for like marked down five dollars in red oh games. yeah 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 like I mean, we had but we had gone to kb and got atari vcs games before we that. have but there weren't a lot of atari 8-bit ones this is the thing we no. started seeing atari 8-bit games getting dropped down because everyone thought otramel's dumping it he he's he dumped those computers on the market this vaporware 65 xe didn't come out for a little while longer and they had no idea what was happening yeah i think that that people just lost the trust that that it was going to be a computer system that it would continue to be supported. Even the local HW computers stopped carrying it. They had they carried it for a really long time. I mean, ever since, you know, like 1980 or something. And eventually um, these all- American companies would, except for EA, but EA eventually did start making the same games or a, a subset of the same games for an Atari computer. It was the ST. So when we saw the trickle of Atari software going up, we saw in the magazines that Epics and... Activision and Electronic Arts. We're starting to make games for the ST. These are companies we recognize. We're all, oh, that's where the games are going on Atari computer. Let's get that computer. And that's yeah. why we moved to it. And there's quite a number of people we knew that did move there after these companies stopped. I mean, in high school, I knew more people with an Atari ST than I ever knew people had Atari 8-bit. That's true. I know a lot of people got Atari STs because, um, yeah, they, it was it, you could you could actually go to the store and and pick one up. Um, for a little while. And the ST beat the Amiga to market and yeah, also it was less expensive. by a couple expensive. months. You could get black and white ST that hooked up to a color monitor and a disk drive for about $550, including tax. The cheapest Amiga you could get was somewhere around $1799 at the time. The A play field leveled out when the Amiga 500 came out and they could put out a cool game pack full of new Amiga games with that 500. There was a Batman pack. There were ones that came out and you could get that for the price of an Atari ST. And so at that point, game wise, you suddenly you have a machine that's better technically for about the same price, but it took a while to get there. I did some research for this episode, Jeff. Can you believe that? I I believe you did Um, a lot of research for this. So what I did was I found a newspaper archive and I wanted to see what was the video game and home computer advertising like in December 1984. What were the prices? What was being blown out? Who was competing with who? And so I'm going to show you these 
these these ads, right? And I have some conclusions from them too, which I think are interesting. Maybe maybe they're interesting. So here's the first one. It is from early December, and it's an Activision ad. And you can see that Activision, Pitfall, River Raid, Enduro, Spider Fighter, Sky Jinx, and Bridge, Sequest, all nine ninety five. So a lot of Atari games out at the time, Atari Vista games are like at under five bucks. Right. Activision's still trying to keep the prices high. They're still in business, right? Yeah, Activision's still they're still in business right now. The old yeah, I mean, companies they're, at that are still time, in they're still trying to to sell regular price software. Right. All right. So here's the next one from December third, a Sears ad, full spread for Commodore sixty four, full yep. spread. This is a two page spread. I know. And it Sears, there aren't a lot of ads like this. No, the they. This is this is um, very bare bones, but magical advertising for Commodore. Yeah, the Commodore sixty four at one ninety nine. This is the type of thing people were seeing, and they would say, "Well, it looks like it's time to get a computer." Kids. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. The next one is uh, from December fourth from T from Toys R Us, and this is an ad they had for video game software, but some of it is computer software. So twenty six hundred, fifty two hundred, and ColecoVision. I think a lot of these games from Activision and from Coleco, but this is a Sega one, are normal priced, except for the Vic twenty software in here, which is three bucks a piece. Well, and the um, Commodore International Soccer, the nineteen ninety seven, that's a full priced piece of software there. So they're not discounting computer software. But look at that. Pitfall 2 from Activision, Ooh. 30 bucks. So this is new, right? Pitfall right. 2 was new at the time. This is David Crane's you know, magnum opus on the Atari 2600. Right. And and they needed to get full value out of it. I th and I know, I think it sold pretty well, but I, but I have to also say that this is a very difficult thing for Activision to try to do in December 1984. They spent a lot of money getting those David Crane plus cartridges out. They needed to make some money back on this, you know. The other game here that I forgot that existed is War Games by Coleco, and I forgot we actually had it on the on the eight bit. Yeah, we have we had a War Games eight bit. I don't remember much about it. I'll... All right, so next we don't have to we have to discuss all these, but here we are. No, this is good. Coleco Vision. Here's an ad. It shows, uh, and this is from I don't remember what the store is, but it's from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I get I did three different sets of newspapers: one in Salt Lake City, one in uh, Eugene, Oregon, and one in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Cool, um, because they existed, but also it's kind of a cross section of different people. So anyway, the 2600 was selling for 49.99. The ColecoVision was about 99.99. Yeah, at this point, you're going to get the ColecoVision. <clears throat> Coleco is still going strong. Coleco has yeah. not. Coleco is the last man standing of the golden age of video games at this point. Uh, and a good, um, a damn good system too. Yeah. But I'll tell you one thing though, a cheap Atari computer at $100 and a bunch of cartridges, they could have beaten the ClicoVision. Yeah, they well, had. you know, don't don't speak too soon. Okay, so here's another ad, Commodore 64, again, at 199 Yep. So you can see another company's kind of... A lot of spinner software. Here's one of my favorites. It's um, it's free games. So this is from... Oh, my God. Um, from a drugstore. Yeah, this is from a drugstore in U Eugene, Oregon. Basically, I, I guess... No, Parker Brothers, just, just Parker, Parker Brothers, Brothers here, had a rebate. And so it said free. Now we know, I mean, how many people actually got a rebate for a company that was not going to be in business? Yeah, the problem longer. was so Popeye, Qbert, Frogger all selling for $9.99 with a $10 rebate, manufacturer right. rebate. But guess what? 
Parker Bros. right out of business by the time yeah, you you're never going to get that remake. And then Enduro Pitfall Mervid, again, just like in the other ad, they're $9.99 each. So, so here's another ad. Save on our, this is this is from Montgomery Wards. And basically they're selling the Atari. I think this is the 600 XL. So don't that is the 600 XL, For one nineteen ninety nine. Yes. But also at the time, can't discount the fact that Coleco was still trying to sell the Atom. Now at four ninety nine, had gone had was came out at five ninety nine, maybe at six ninety nine. You um, know, the Atom came with a printer and it came with a cassette drive. A, if you put the cassettes cassette anywhere drive. near the printer, the cassettes would er get erased. Okay, there were there were some problems with the Atom, and I'm going to explain. And there's a lot to go through here, but I'll explain why I think the Atom didn't sell very well too. Okay, cool. um, even though it, it had a good value proposition, we'll keep going. Here's a company, Jafco, which became best, just so you know. Company okay. named Jafco. And all um, of their software here is computer software, mostly for the Commodore 64, does it look like? Yeah. They've got Zork and Ghostbusters and Questron and Pitstop 2. And the reason and I mentioned that is it's all full priced. It's all full priced at this time. Yeah. Right. And it's for the it's for Commodore again. Oh, yeah. Commodore um, software. Here's a Toys R Us ad. There aren't oh, a lot of Toys R Us wow. ads this time from Eugene, Oregon. Check this out. It's it's a full Coleco ad selling the Atom for four hundred ninety nine eighty four and the ColecoVision for ninety nine eighty and then all they bunch of software for full price full price right I mean this is Coleco really trying to keep these prices up they're really trying just like kind of like them in Activision trying to keep this golden age of video games alive. right they're trying this is the do or die Christmas for ColecoVision basically absolutely okay. Here's something that I thought was interesting. If you see this article called Slow Sales, Don't Worry Retailers. Sure Items that. that are selling well include video cassette recorders, especially those that have stereo sound, telephones, microwave ovens, board games, rainbow bright dolls, GoBot robotic toys, sleepwear for men, women and children, and other clothing. Got but it. What is not mentioned there are any types of computers or video games. Nope. And video recorders and phones are big things. You'll see, and I have tons of ads. That's a really Basically, good point right there. At that exact point in time, VCRs and princess phones, we're going to call them, just second lines in people's houses, became huge. Because of the deregulation of the phone company and because um, video, video cassette recorders started getting cheaper. Right. I mean, we got one the next year, which means they had, had to be cheap. So that was really, if you think about it, retailers, these are people who don't know video games from video cassettes, but a lot of them, right? They're looking at video software and they're going, hey, video cassettes are going to take over video games. So they're going in that direction. And that's why video games kind of become a little bit old hat for a year. It's, by the way, 1984 has a, a ton of ads compared to 1985, which there's almost none. Mostly video cassette recorders, video VCRs and telephones lots of telephone ads next is from december 17th a couple stokes in salt lake city or in utah huge atari supplier and you can see that 800 xl is 115.99 so Whoa. maybe it wasn't the 600 is it XL. A, no i mean the thing is the in the picture it was a 600 xl it was the shorter oh, but, shorter but, machine but if you look at it so this one's not this, this is tramiel tramiel's selling out his stock one fifteen ninety nine, because next year there's not going to be any any more Atari. There's something very ironic in here too, Steve. What? What's ironic in this picture? There's Atari eight hundred selling, one fifteen save eighty one dollars. The ten fifty disc drive one seventy nine save seventy dollars. Some printers and stuff next to it in the right hand column. Amiga joysticks. 
for the Ataris are all on sale for $499. <laughs> I just wanted to point that also out. notice the Atari VCS is selling for $36.99. And how much are game cartridges, Steve? Two bucks. Two so, dollars. Oh, so, so look at Atari this is Crash. really this is not just the crash. This is Tramiel just unloading. Look the, at Atari, but below that, what are the Atari 400, 800, 1200 software? All for $12.99, including yeah. chess, Galaxian, Kicks for $9.99, tennis, football, and pango for $12.99. You could get at this point. If you were a smart shopper, not one driven by TV commercials, but if you're a smart shopper, you could have got an Atari 800XL and a whole bunch of great game cartridges right there for, yeah, for like 200 bucks. For the price of a Commodore 64, which yeah, was a little have. bit more at that point. It was And then the disk drive is down to 179.99. Uh, that's a 1050. I mean, this is really a pretty good value proposition. So 300 bucks, you can get Atari 800 XL, which is a, which is a mean machine. Let's just let's be honest. And a disk drive for 300 bucks. I mean, that's way better than what the Commodore's doing. Problem. I, I think the retailers were not. We're pushing it. Yeah, or, or they were burned by Atari. Yeah, they're burned. I mean, Tramiel's coming and trying to push things at retail. That's different. Atari, they probably were burnt a little bit, but you could, if it was the same Atari people coming back to who they knew and merchandisers and things, it's different. You, that's why you saw 700 games on the floor of under and underneath things that never put anywhere. There were no paid no merchandisers going yeah. into <coughs> and planogramming the shelves. No retail services personnel. Atari and Mattel Atari basically uh, invented that business, the original right. Atari. That all went away for Atari. Hey everybody, it's Bill from Atari Bytes. Every week on my show I play a great old game, then I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game. Loosely inspired. Okay, often completely different. Sometimes not even based on any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical Blank, which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep listening. Okay, let's go to the next. Okay, so I say this is really quick. Texas Instruments is just blowing everything out because they yeah. they actually canceled the computer at that that time. At that point, um, it's really interesting to follow all of the whole the whole TI saga. I think I'm gonna make a video of the whole TI saga. The other one that's really interesting, by, by the way, at the same time all of this stuff is going on with the computer stuff, Radio Shack. Oh like yeah, is in a world of their own. They have their own computers. They they just keep releasing new versions until they release a PC. You know also what? Named TRS-80, by there the actually way. is something that we could have done if we had enough money at the time. And if we stayed only in a Radio Shack, if we were, if we were in a small town that just had a Radio Shack and we got a Tandy 1000, which was a PC Junior, it had the PC Junior's extended graphic mode uh -huh. and all the software they made for the Tandy 1000 is being made, you actually could have had an alternative universe of a pretty damn good computer, but it's a PC compatible. Sure. Um, so not, here's, here's not as good as the ST. I'm just saying it's it's you know this anyway. this Stokes Brothers ad again, and then an ad about fam uh, an article about family spending more on Christmas this year, but it, but not necessarily on video games. In Christmas 1984, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here's Play World, and I had this because they're selling the Atom for $500 again. So the Atom again is 500 bucks. Here's one by Mart that is selling. All computers 10% off and all software 50% off. So that doesn't Ooh. bode well. And the computer they're showing is a, looks like a Commodore 64. Because it doesn't look like a Atari 800, but that, uh, yeah, it's a Commodore 64. Yeah. Here's another one. IBM Head's Most Admired List. I put this in here because 
it's really important. There's an article I saw and I was looking for it again and I wanted to show it in this, but I, I can't find it. It was called Computer Selling, but only high cost com computers. And the reason is because if you had a business computer, you could take it off your taxes. Right. And there are really expensive IBM computers. They're between $1,500 and like $5,000. Tandy sells them for like 10 grand. But compared to the Atom for like 600 bucks, it's like if you're going to plunk 600 bucks down, you might as well plunk 1200 bucks down. It's a, it's a chunk of change when you're thinking about what type of computer that you're going to buy. And I think that for the Atom, it was a really hard value proposition. If the Atom was split apart. So Wait, if you, if buy, you split an Atom, Steve? Sorry. Okay. Yes. No, I didn't get it. Let's look at the Stokes ad again. Okay. I can get Tire and Atari computer with, with a disk drive and a printer all together. And it is what? Five, nine, 500 bucks, right? Yeah. That's basically what the Atom is selling for 500 bucks. But the value proposition is easier because I go into the store and I say, oh, the computer is 115. So that's what I'm going to get. And then you're like, oh, just for 179 more, I can get a disk drive. Oh, that's cool. And, and then I go, oh, I can add a printer for $200. That seems pretty good. But you get the chance to make that decision. And with the Atom, you didn't get that chance, no. right? It's like, it's all bundled together. Not, not that it wasn't a great value, but I think it's harder for people to think that that's what they want to buy. One other uh, thing about that, I do remember back then, and you know, news coverage of com computers and video games was just always so effing hilarious. But this was like the one thing, a big news thing that says, I remember seeing this and it, it either made, I think it made me mad, but it was like, you'll be able to write off that new computer that you get for Christmas 1985, unless you have Johnny play Pac-Man on it. Yeah, yeah, unless, jo I think, unless Johnny plays Donkey Kong. I know the exact thing here, Jeff, we sat and watched the same thing. We sat and watched I'm all, screw you, buddy. But yeah, that was, was true like, though, and Johnny this is plays... what drove, this is what drove to what exactly what you're saying. People buying the more expensive computer so they could write off their taxes. Right. And there's actually ads. I don't have them in here, but ads where people are like, buy that computer, right? If you're taxes. I mean, it was like a, a, a real thing. A so here is a, here's the VIC 20 at 69.97, which is interesting oh, wow. that Toys R Us. Here is Fred Meyer, which is basically the target of, yeah. of the Pacific Northwest. I've been there many times. Um, with the Commodore 64 is 189 and the disk drive is 250. So there, you know, I mean, still higher than, which for me was blowing out the, the 800 and 1054. Here's an 800 XL in this ad from Kmart, 99 bucks. Right. $99. So, I mean, they even dropped the price more, or at least or at least Kmart did. These should have been selling like hotcakes. Yeah. The the luster was off Atari. People knew that it wasn't long for the day. And yeah, but we didn't. So who, who are these people who knew? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm just saying like, they're blowing these things out for nine. I didn't know that this. Let was me the price let me show you something though. Let me write in this same ad. You have digital watches for two dollars and ninety nine cents. Then you have a TMK VHS recorder for two ninety eight. Now at that right. point in time, we're talking about three hundred dollars. This means you can both play movies you've never been able to see before because movies were not available to anyone again right. after you saw in theater record them, which was the feature that everyone was talking about, along with being able to rent movies, $300. Atari 1027 printer, which you have no idea what to do with if you're a <laughs> consumer, is $269 right under that. Which one are you going to buy? I know, it's just the value if proposition. I'm a consumer, I'm going here and I'm buying a VCR and, I'm, and I can do this wonderful new world of TV that I didn't have access to before.
It's like time but, shifting TV, which was not something that was even thought of before. No, no, it's really cool. But I just still like marvel at the fact that the 800 XL is 99 bucks in this. App. Yeah, I know. I mean, these should have been flying off the shelves. I know Dad ended up buying one. Even later, he had one later, yeah. which was probably 50 bucks at that time. So he here's again another Stokes ad. The, Asteroids, uh, missile cannon, Star Raiders for nine ninety nine for the computer. For the computer. Right. And again, 800 XL, one fifteen ninety nine. Atari VCS, thirty six ninety nine. I mean, this is really this is Tremil's price for. Here's another Fred Meyer ad with all Atari twenty six hundred games and fifty percent off. And 5200. And 50% off. There aren't a lot of 5200 ads, by the way, which is really strange to me. This is a weird one. Armadillo Brothers, they didn't really know what they had. They're selling a new Atari 800 XL for $300. Right. Yeah, so this this is, is February 1984. So if you see in February 1984, the 800 was selling for still for $300. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Games were still selling. And by the end of the year, these prices are drastic this is the, so this is the, let's this is go the back original let's, atari right let's go back and talk about this it's still atari under warner games for the atari 2600 being advertised for 2695 games for the Atari 5200 being advertised for 2695 the disk drive the 1050 disk drive for the atari being 359 atari 800 for 299 and you get into commodore shelf too all of these are the prices that computer companies wanted to get by the end of the year, the price yes, war the, and the thing. This is, the, end, this is these, the beginning of the year. This way down. This is the end of the year. Yeah, the right end of there. the year. Beginning right. of the year, um, the end of the year, everything's cut in half at least. And and I've got ads that go all the way through the rest of the year. It's very interesting. But what I did want to show you was one other thing. These are the VCR ads. Okay. And there are so many. Video and rentals. And rentals. Rentals. Beta or, or VHS selection. Uh, v, the, all these TV electronics and no video games to be found anywhere. Well, there's I, one that has TVs, electronics, and there's a Commodore well, 64 there, video, which is correct. Yeah, videotapes, rent a VCR, six cartoon classics for the holidays for 30 bucks. That's just very expensive. That's like $100. In, yeah, but that, at the time that was... Fire. There's a lot to be said. I only took a sample. Like, really, to be honest, the admin of VCRs at the same time, this is the VCR era. The people want to know what, what happened some people want to know, maybe people like me. It's like, why weren't video games big until Nintendo came around? It's because of this. Because the because VCR was VCRs like, kind of took its place for a little while. That's, it did. That's the my... VCR became the console under the TV that wasn't the video game. It was also interactive in a way, right? You could rent movies. You could record things and play them back. It taught you time-shifted TV, and you're able to get things that you never were able to get before. This was, it was passive. It was full color, full video, right? Like it, this is what yes. people were looking at. Okay, so um, and one more thing I want to share with you: all the phone apps. This oh, is oh yeah, because this deregulation. Is deregulation. Now you can own your own phone. Phones are another. They're another piece of electronic that's brand new. And video games are kind of old hat at the time. That's my presentation for you, Jeff. That I wanted to show, just to show what were things like in December 1984. <music> I did a little research myself into December 1984. Um, I went through the Antic and Analog magazines and also page six in the UK for December. So you know the December issues are normally the Christmas issues because they come out in November. And also these guys would all now have some information about what's going to happen to Atari and be scared spookless maybe? I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, but, they're, they're getting close, so right? So Antic, December 1984, starts out with an editorial about BBSs of all things. 
Oh, right? wow. Now, we, this is before we went to Fedco and got the Volksmodem that Dad forgot to give us. <laughs> Epics is advertising, you know, Pit Stop 2. I remember seeing that game being played at Fedco. There is an ad for Dallas Quest um, by Datasoft. There's an ad yeah. for Mr. Do. Definitely a game we wanted. There's an Ultima 3 ad for the Atari computer. So games are still being released. Oh, yeah. For the the Volksmodem, though. There's a modem roundup. So modem roundup in this issue. Again, something we definitely would have seen. Yeah. And Volks modem is by far the cheapest at $79.99. The haze that Wesley had, $699. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we are we are the Volks modem. The that, games that epic still a full-fledged software company for the Atari has Dragon Riders of Pern. There's a Sublogic Flight Simulator 2 app, not Microsoft, but Sublogic, obviously. And then they did a bunch of game reviews, Gyrus, Spelunker, Atari Football, Keystone Capers, Epic's Puzzle Panic. I don't remember this game, but it did come out. Music Construction Set, Mask of the Sun, One-on-One. -on -one. A bunch of games are coming out for Christmas. These are games that are coming out for the Atari computers these people aren't anticipating their games being sold for 999 at no. this point these are new software being advertised in the december issue analog a lot of the same stuff a lot more infocom games there's an editorial though on jack tramill about an article in forbes magazine but the rumors in this article are that they're going to expand the 800 xl and there's going to have some 16-bit and 32-bit computers. So they were getting correct information. Yeah, 130XE, and they they were they were making right. the, the ST, right? So that's that's good, yeah. There are a lot more reviews in this one. Basically the same. There was the arcade machine, though, which we had not seen at the time. If we had known the arcade machine was coming out by Broderbund, we probably would have picked it up and started making some arcade games. Oh, yeah, that. that's a, that was a fun We I don't think we ever knew it was available or couldn't find it. No, we um, couldn't find it. I wanted it. So this is interesting one. This is page six from December 1984. This is where I got the Jeff Minter quote. So there's a Lamasoft ad where Hover Bover was being played. Probably Attack of the Mutant Camels, but that had not come out yet. And a game called TurboFlex, which I never knew about for the 8-bits. There was an editorial lamenting the lack of communication that Jack Stramel was giving to customers and magazines. And in this one, there is an editorial by Jeff Minter who talks about his love for the Atari 8-bits. He loved making games for them in hopes that the Maria chip will be added to the 8-bits. Oh, wow. Itself. That's cool. They had a lot of their they have, they have reviews of Orc Attack, Tale of Beta Lare, Hover Bover, James Bond by Parker Brothers, Tank Command, ads for the Atari Home Entertainment Centers where you get Atari software on these racks at various oh, nice. places. Uh, English software had a bunch of great games, Jet Boot Jack and stuff like that. All these people hoping to make money on Atari computers, all who'd be crushed in the next year as Jack Tramiel dragged his feet, dumped the Atari 8 bits on the on the market, dragged his feet on those on those XEs, which he never had to do. He could have just put out the XLs. Um, he could have just kept the XLs going. Why didn't going, he have to make it? I mean, they, you know, he, he lowered the cost. He but. did lower the cost. And he made them like 89 bucks or something at a point. But I mean, really, it took a long time to get there. And by the time they got there, they were coming to the... SBACE, the South Bay Atari Amusers Group, they started coming and showing us the STs and showing us the, about this file system and trying to get the, the user groups to be the evangelists for this new computers. And at that point, there was no, there was 
only rumors that they would have new XL compatible computers out. They're, they didn't have anything to show. And that point we're like, well, what the F? Like, what's going on here? And you can see if that was their approach. That's why software companies were like, yeah, no more Atari 8-bit software going to put out. Why do it? A few companies did, but not enough. Anyway, so that's what I got out of going through all of these. It was just a lot of companies get pushing the software out. They had purchased early in the year, not realizing what was about to hit them. Yeah, no, no. I mean, one other thing I wanted to say was that on like January 3rd, 1985, Coleco uh, ended the Atom as well. So they were really pushing it that Christmas, but I think the high-priced computers were just too much, like you know, your Pete, your IBMs, your, your Apples. Apple IIc is out, plus the Lisa is out, plus the Macintosh is just about to be, it's just, just, there's so many, and they're all very expensive, and people look at those as like serious things, and these little, these other computers, besides the Commodore 64, which, which ended up doing really well, everything, there was only room for one. Commodore um, 64 had the Zeitgeist, yeah. of, and they had the entertainment software, and they had the abilities, and they had the stuff to go along with it that Atari had lost in the shuffle between not getting the computers out in 1983 for Christmas, 1984, just a dump. And now VCRs and stuff had come in and it was like American TVs were changing to be around entertainment based on software and videotapes and time shifting and computers were going to be high end or the Commodore 64. That was it. There's only room for those. And that's what happened. I think it would have been interesting if Coleco had not made the Atom and instead just pushed the ClicoVision and made it a second ClicoVision or something that could have been interesting. Um, um, I'm not sure that it would have it would have done much better because it's in this climate where you know it's really about video. This is how the ClicoVision could have survived. A- add a VCR capability to it. Okay, Steve, I have a couple treats for us from the first Christmas episode. We created a song based around the 12 days of Christmas. Where, yeah. and we also created a uh, both the, both the twelve days of Christmas, and I think we sang. Um, we had another song that was about the various podcasts that were out at the time. Oh. I'm going to play really? both do we of have those. To, do we have to reload? Oh, we have to put that? them back out again. Yes. So they're both going to go out at the end of this episode. Okay. Plus, there's a new Tony Longworth song before that so you can listen to Tony Longworth's song first so then what we really did in this episode was say look that's December 1985 and at the end of December 1985 we left all that behind and we jumped on the modem and we were in cyberspace and we never looked back never I looked back never looked back December of 1984 on we have been having communications on a modem right. and I still remember that telephone number Steve what was that telephone number 3720263 that was our telephone number Steve 3737 yeah. 026. Okay, well, until January, Steve. Yes. Into the vertical blank. Into the vertical. Into the vertical blank.
Christmas 81, Atari gave to me a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas 82, Atari gave to me two arcade conversions and a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas 83, Atari gave to me three 8-bit computers, two arcade conversions, and a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas 84, Atari gave to me four abandoned projects, three 8-bit computers, two arcade conversions, and a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas 85, Atari gave to me five discount games, four abandoned projects, three 8-bit computers, two arcade conversions, and a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas 86, Atari gave to me six ST computers, five discount games, four abandoned projects, three 8-bit computers, two arcade conversions, and a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas 87, Atari gave to me seven 7800s, six ST computers, five discount games, Four abandoned projects, three 8-bit computers, two arcade conversions, and a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas 88, Atari gave to me eight games imported, seven 7800s, six ST computers, five discount games. Four abandoned projects, three 8-bit computers, two arcade conversions, and a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas 89, Atari gave to me nine Lynx's mewing, eight games imported, seven 7800s, Six ST computers, five discount games, four abandoned projects, three 8 bit computers, two arcade conversions, and a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas 1990, Atari gave to me ten Federated's closing. Nine links is mewing, eight games imported, seven seventy hundreds, six ST computers, five discount games, four abandoned projects, three eight bit computers, two arcade conversions, and a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas ninety one, Atari gave to me eleven elusive Panthers. Ten Federated's closing, nine Lynx's mewing, eight games imported, seven 7800s, six ST computers, five discount games, four abandoned projects, three 8-bit computers, two arcade conversions, and a VCS under the Christmas tree. On Christmas 92, Atari gave to me 
12 Jaguar announcements, 11 elusive Panthers, 10 Federated closing, 9 Lynxes mooing, 8 games imported, 7 70 hundreds, 6 ST computers, 5 discount games, 4 abandoned projects, 3 8-bit computers, 2 arcade conversions, and a VCS under the Christmas tree. Oops. <laughs> And a VCS under the Christmas tree. Rocket Studios Production.